Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Modern living as we know it is drastically changing during this pandemic. So is assisted living for older adults. Since the start of the pandemic, many families have faced difficult decisions about whether their older parent or family member should remain in an assisted living facility or receive care at home. My guests today are Colleen Duell, Aging Life Care Manager of Lionheart Elder Care, and Lisa Householder, Client Care Director with Home Helpers of Northern Virginia. They're going to talk about issues nursing homes and assisted living facilities have been dealing with to care for and keep residents safe and healthy during COVID-19. They're also going to talk about matters families need to face when deciding whether to care for loved ones at home. They'll also explain how home health care providers can help families make these decisions. So welcome, Colleen and Lisa, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for having us. All right. Well, Colleen, let's start with you uh, to get some overview, especially in terms of nursing homes. We, we've had six months, almost seven months of the COVID-19 pandemic now. In your opinion, is the crisis continuing to hit nursing homes and assisted living facilities especially hard or are things changing? What would you tell us? Well, that's a great question, and I really love that you um, made the differentiation between nursing home and assisted living, because as we talk today, I'll be referencing both, and I'll go into that a little bit later. But is it hitting hard? Yes. In fact, when you think about how this is impacting the residents in a community, any kind of senior living community, I sort of think of this crisis in two parts. One is COVID itself and the effect that that's having on people's health. and the effect that it's having on, on the staff. But there's also the other part, which is the social isolas- isolation. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Um, and each of those have an impact. So initially, we were very worried about the effect of COVID. Um, we saw lots of death, lots of illness at the beginning. Um, we all then went into lockdown. And over the summer, we did see things get better sort of across the board. And as we all see in the news, that's amping up again. On the other hand, um, initially, I think we all felt like we're in this together and people were doing everything they could to support residents, um, either in nursing homes or in assisted living. But as the pandemic goes on and the social isolation keeps going, um, I feel like that crisis is just getting larger and larger. Um, People have been alone for months now, and that is very hard. So family members aren't able to see their loved ones. And when they do see them, they see that the depression um, and loss of cognitive function has really increased, unfortunately. Well, and you're, you're leading into my next question, which is so important insofar as this problem of isolation. So have there been any changes in the steps that long-term care facilities have taken regarding outside visitors. We always used to see about family members looking through the window um, at their loved ones and, of course, the person who is in the facility looking out. Has anything changed and are there new rules insofar as... So what's happening now? Yeah, yeah. Tell us. 
Yeah, well, I want to start even a little upstream of that and, and talk about testing. Um, as you know, in the beginning, testing was very hard to come by, and we were prioritizing hospitals over long-term care uh, communities. And, and I understand that, but I also think <laughs> that's been really unfortunate. So um, testing gives us a good sense of what is possible and what makes sense from a safety perspective. Um, so earlier we talked about the difference between nursing homes and assisted livings. And finally, you're seeing sort of across the board, there be much more mandated testing for people living in nursing homes. Nursing homes, sort of under the hood, are funded, some people are there with private pay, but a nursing home is kind of what we think of as a, as a rehab facility where you may go after a hospital, or some people live there long-term care and are Medicaid. Medicaid is a state-funded program, and then Medicare is federal. So you have a lot of regulation. Both the state and the feds want to make sure that there's a certain level of quality. So there are a lot of regulations in nursing homes. More regulations with testing, more regulations with who visits. On the same time, people who live in nursing homes tend to be sicker and more vulnerable. So they are more vulnerable to the virus, but they are also more vulnerable to um, isolation because they are, their visits are being really restricted. So it varies state by state and it varies on what the testing results um, are. Usually nursing homes have to be completely COVID free for 14 days before any person can come in. If they are in that quarantine period, if they haven't had um, no new cases for 14 days, then just what you said, Cheryl, people are doing window visits, sometimes only closed window visits, which means that perhaps two people are talking on the cell phone um, on the other side of the opposite sides of the windows and looking at each other. Some are doing porch visits, so these are distance visits outside, uh, six feet away, and those are supervised. Um, and then when we think about assisted living, there isn't quite the oversight, there isn't quite the same level of mandated testing. Um, so <laughs> for better or worse, there's often more visiting. Some places are doing a great job with that and testing really regularly and knowing that they are meeting all of those standards. Um, so in some assisted livings, you actually see people coming in now to the facility. There's a lot of screening that happens first. I would love to see rapid testing when we finally get there before someone comes in. But more and more places are allowing a particular person to be designated as their um, compassionate person or their mandatory caregiver, their essential caregiver, and those people are being allowed in. But how often? It's often once a week, sometimes just for an hour. I'll give you one quick example. Um, I helped a family recently who's um, it was a woman whose husband had gone to the hospital and then he was sent to rehab and while he was at rehab they he became very terminally ill and they realized he was near the end of his life um, and they were going to as a compassionate leave allow his wife to come in for one hour a day one visit per day and so she called me on a Thursday we got him back home on a Friday with hospice and she was able to spend the final weekend with him at home. So yes, you can get in, um, but you really do need to think about the safety and, and, and whether that's realistic. And it sounds like it, it really varies with the long-term care facility uh, insofar as how they allow the residents to connect with their families. Is, is there a difference then that depending on who the families are, that the, the rules are different or are they pretty consistent then in terms of how 
the residents connect with their families? Well, certainly some families are close by and so they can do a window visit, but other families can't. You know, my dad lives in Texas, so, um, and he's in a residential um, community there. So all we have is FaceTime. Um, now, fortunately, he can handle FaceTime, you know, with the help of somebody there, but for many loved ones, FaceTime or um, Zoom is all they have. And for people with cognitive issues, that can be really challenging to understand. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on within the facility. I mean, you again talked about the isolation. Uh, are, is the is the status of social activities, has that changed? Is Are people confined to their rooms all the time, even in terms of getting their meals? Or uh, what's happening? Are there, are there new rules there? And of course, again, um, I suspect I know what the impact on the residents, but enlighten us as to what you're hearing and seeing. Well, you're right. There is a tremendous amount of variation. And again, um, staff are doing everywhere. They're doing their very best. This is a really challenging time for everyone. So in no ways am I saying that anybody's purposefully punishing or, or increasing the difficulty for the residents. Everybody's trying their very best. It's just a very trying time. But to specifically answer your question, one of the most therapeutic things that people can do is be with each other. That helps cognitively, that helps with depression, that helps with everything. Um, so what communities are doing is sort of like you said, for the most part, people need to stay in their rooms. Now, if they have passed a lot of testing, you know, based on the state, governors have set up different levels. So if they're at orange, they can do this, or if they're at yellow, they can do this. So some people are allowed into the dining room to do distanced meals. Some people can do some group activities, again, from a distance. Um, but a lot of times folks are sort of left in their room and they are then interacting with a staff member from a distance. Uh, Lisa, I'm gonna um, mention, let Lisa talk about some interesting things that she has seen um, in communities for how they've managed this. Thank you, Colleen, for the opportunity to address this as well. One of the things that was brought to my attention by um, another care manager actually was where there was a facility where if the residents were able to, they kind of met in their, met in their doorways. So their doorways gave them the opportunity to be six feet away from other people and also the staff member. And the staff member was in the hallway and it helped them to be able to participate in what they called door exercises. So I do think that facilities are starting to be creative in continuing the engagement and socialization that is very important to keep the residents engaged and you know, emotionally healthy because there has been a lot of um, continued isolation and especially with someone in a memory care facility who cannot handle the technology such as Zoom, being able to interact one-to-one -one with other people has you know, had a great impact. So we've talked a little bit about social activities. What about healthcare providers? Obviously, uh, the residents here need some kind of healthcare, our healthcare providers still able to come into the facility to provide care uh, or therapies like physical therapy? What's, what's that status, Colleen? 
Well, we have a little good news there. Throughout this entire process, for the most part, all healthcare providers have been allowed in. There are, you know, there's certainly variation, but physical therapy, occupational therapy, medical teams have all pretty consistently been allowed into communities. They they need to do what they're doing. What I do love is that um, more doctors with the Medicare rules are able to do telehealth visits. So, and sometimes they can call and talk with a doctor um, just through their phone or through FaceTime, and that's been great. Uh, however, I'll give you the example of hospice. So, Throughout the pandemic, if somebody is on hospice, their hospice nurse has been able to come in. But the other part of the hospice team, which is really the value of hospice, that interdisciplinary team, those other members are not are often not allowed in, like social workers, clergy, and volunteers, and other people who support that person. So their medical needs, I think, are being met. Um, but those other therapies, those social and recreational therapies, that's that's more limited. And it seems like it would be more appropriate for the healthcare provider to come to the facility rather than taking the resident out to take them to a, a, a doctor visit. Would that be true, Colleen? Absolutely. And we, you know, I think every community is trying to do that, partly because if they leave the community, then they're in um, quarantine again for 10 to 14 days. So as many visits that can happen inside the community as possible. I definitely work with that for all of my clients that are in communities. I do my very best to make sure that they are doing telemedicine visits with their doctor. What What's the situation with staff members? That was a big deal, particularly at the start of, of, of the pandemic of uh, people coming or not coming or a shortage of staff to begin with, and now it was made even worse by COVID. Is that kind of leveling off or is that still a huge problem uh, in nursing homes and and I guess more in nursing homes than assisted living facilities? But but talk about talk about both. What 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 is the situation with staff right now? Well, you've really hit the nail on the head. This is a huge issue. I, I wish that it weren't. I know that it was particularly difficult in the beginning. It has gotten better, but we are still in a really tough spot. Um, it's been harder to find and retain staff. People realize for the same amount of money, I can go work somewhere else that's far less risky to me and my family. Um, even when you do have staff, if they've been exposed or test positive, they have to quarantine, and so you have fewer staff in the communities and so does the community backfill and try to hire somebody just while they're on quarantine or do they just do reduced staff which is typically what happens um, on the other side um, you know through because of covid and and people's concerns about covid people have moved back home some people have just um, also died <laughs> either of covid or or of or of natural causes. Um, so there are fewer residents, there's certainly fewer people moving in. So overall, the communities are less full. And um, so you don't have the need for quite as many staff, but you also are seeing a lot of short staffing issues. And then one other thing I want to mention is um, during those 10 to 14 days, if somebody has been exposed or tested positive, they have to be in quarantine and they often go look for another job during that time because they're not paid. And Lisa can really speak to her the impact she's seen with that. 
seen you know a huge impact um, based on the staff members because a lot of caregivers that work in home care, at least part-time, often work in facilitate facility care too, you know, to supplement their income. So I've had, you know, honest conversations with many of our caregivers who, especially in the beginning of COVID, if they worked in a long-term care facility where they were lacking the appropriate PPE, they were really scared. And, you know, I, I have a caregiver that quit working for a skilled facility because she said, you know, it wasn't worth her risk to risk her own health and to risk the health of her family. And so, you know, I've heard multiple stories where care providers who once worked in a facility now have left because the risk they feel is too high. Um, if they work for an agency, then theoretically they work for one, maybe two different clients where in a facility you're taking care of, you know, 14 clients on your shift and then you're going home and then maybe you are, you know, called in because they're short chefs, short staff to work on another wing. And it just, you know, the, the exposure multiplies as does the fear. Um, also, facilities have been subcontracting with some agencies for staffing. Um, if they haven't been able to maintain the staffing levels through their own staff, they have contracted, you know, like an employment contract with agencies to help provide staff, which to me, I, I understand that they need to do that. But again, I, I think it, you know, increases the exposure for everyone. So I don't see the end of the staffing crisis coming to a close for quite some time because as Colleen said, you know, home care or facility care is not one of the highest paying jobs and they can in fact transition into a different employment um, and not have the risk factors. So um, thank you, Colleen, for giving me the opportunity to provide some information as well. I just wanted to add to that what you're saying, Lisa and Colleen, you too have either of you seen or read about or heard any kind of documentation that reduced staff affects the the needed care for residents or is it more hearsay or um you know uh different places that you might have visited yourself but is there actual documentation that there's a an effect on care with reduced staff I don't know about official documentation, you know, or where that would you, you'd be able to, to retain or, or find statistics regarding that. But I do know my background, you know, I, the reason why I got into home care specifically was because I had worked for a skilled care facility and, you know, witnessed the individual burnout and witnessed the, you know, the level of care is just much different. Basic needs are met, but not much more. And in some facilities, night shifts, you have one CNA that's taking care of 16 people. Um, so, you know, I, 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 they have certain staffing minimums that they have to work um, within for their license structure, but I don't know, you know, if they're adding any more to support the needs of, of what's going on due to the pandemic. Do you know, Colleen? 
my anecdotal experience just with my own clients and talking to people is that staffing continues to be an issue. And, you know, if we just look at Medicaid, for example, Medicaid, so nursing homes um, are held to a very high standard in terms of inspections and that kind of thing. Those inspections have been suspended largely during COVID, which is a huge concern. Um, but we know in non-pandemic times that the less staffing there is, the the risk poorer the outcomes are, and that's why it's something that Medicaid um, Medicaid reports on is the staffing because we absolutely can see that there is a tie there. I would also add uh, to that the concern, and I'm sure other people think about this too, as to whether the staff members who are there have the medical training or know about infection control. Man, when this came about in March, this was something new. And I'm sure, I don't know. I I would ask both of you as to whether there is this kind of training that's provided to staff members so that they know what they need to do. And, um, and so they could help to lower the, the possibility of infections. But what do you see? What do you know about what kind of training staff gets for either, uh, well, in assisted living facilities or nursing home? Well, it's been a scramble for sure. As you know, we all have experienced an uncertainty about how is it transmitted? How can we keep ourselves safe? Even if we did know, do we have the PPE that we know that we need to keep ourselves safe? So absolutely, that scramble was was very pronounced at the beginning, certainly exists today. However, I've seen a couple of really positive things. One is I've seen communities really come together and partner with each other and say, what are you doing? You know, the feds are coming out with requirements, um, states coming out with requirements in terms of training. So I've seen some, I've seen some companionship here with people supporting each other. And there now is pretty good guidance from the CDC and other sources about that training. What I and the other good news is there is more PPE available. We're not quite in that crisis situation that we were before. What I do see, though, is that people are getting complacent. And you see this everywhere you go. You and I drive around and we see that everybody's wearing their masks under their chin um, or my favorite under the nose. Um, so people are getting fatigued with wearing the PPE, with changing their gowns, with changing their gloves, with doing all of that. So my concern at this point maybe isn't so much about the training, is whether there's consistency in how they are delivering that. My other worry is staff, um, you know, what? how are they exposing themselves when they're at home? They finally get home. Are they being as careful at home as they are in the community? And then as Lisa mentioned earlier, staff will also take other jobs. So they may work in a community during the day and then go private duty and take a night shift at night. And they're bringing that exposure back to the community with them. Lisa, anything you wanted to add to that, that you're, you're seeing? Well, I, I totally support what Colleen is saying and have seen that as well. You know, it's, it's unfortunate because of the economics of our area and the inability to have most caregivers work one job to be able to support their families. So, you know, they are working for facilities, you know, whether it's assisted living or skilled facilities and also working for home care agencies, multiple home care agencies sometimes as well. And we don't always know where our staff members go or where they have been. Um, you know, we put, you know, put certain, you know, 
checklist together so that they have to answer specific questions prior to starting their shifts. And, you know, in the bigger picture, it was a huge struggle for home care agencies initially to get the proper PPE because it was going to hopefully, um, you know, the higher levels of care initially, but, you know, we struggled, you know, to get masks and gloves and, you know, the cost of that we're now incurring to buy, a, you know, a box of gloves that used to be like maybe two or three dollars and now they're $18. Um, and, and so, you know, making sure that we're having, you know, the appropriate PPE. We provide, you know, COVID training for all of our caregivers, but, you know, I don't know what training they've received from other facilities or other agencies. You know, we all follow the basic CDC guidelines, at least I hope we do, but I do, you know, agree with Colleen, there's, there's starting to be some complacency in, you know, the use of PPE or you know, really understanding the importance of doing it at all times. So thank you again for the opportunity. Okay. Well, this is a good place to stop because, of course, we want to hear more about the kinds of decision-making steps that families would have to think about. And we'll talk about that in the second half of the program. But we're going to take a break here for an important message. Just want our listeners to know that we are talking with Colleen Dwell, Aging Life Care Manager of Lionheart Elder Care, and Lisa Householder, Client Care Director with Home Helpers of Northern Virginia. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are talking with Colleen Duell, Aging Life Care Manager of Lionheart Elder Care, and Lisa Householder, Client Care Director with Home Helpers of Northern Virginia. And we just spent a lot of time talking about what the situation is within nursing homes and long-term care facilities, uh, assisted living facilities, I should say, during the pandemic. So we want to talk more now about the kinds of decision-making steps that families should take to decide about whether they should bring a loved one home from a long-term care facility or whether it would be better to, for that loved one to stay within the facility. So Lisa, let's start with you. What would be the first steps a family should consider when making this really major decision? Thank you for allowing me to answer this question. And I think that there's there's many different steps that need to be evaluated sort of as first steps because they all will work together to help families make the best decision. You know, things like, you know, can their loved one, you know, can their care be maintained appropriately out of a facility? Um, You know, will there be an impact on not only the client, but the family members as well? Uh, We, of course, want to make sure if someone's being transitioned to home that we're doing so into a safe environment, especially with the pandemic and making sure that family members are continuing to uh, support infection control because chances are, you know, one of the reasons their loved one may be in a facility are for, you know, longer term health issues that, you know, we would need to you know, understand the risk and, you know, whether or not we can, in fact, um, support that safely. 
you know, and also looking at the accessibility of one's home. You know, has their home been, you know, retrofitted or prepared to, to move their loved one back from a facility where those things, of course, are in place there? Um, you know, I'll go through a few of these in greater detail. And then at the end, we'll also ask Colleen to join me as we do have an example of how we both work together to transition one of our mutual clients from an assisted living um, back home a few months ago, mostly due to, you know, issues that, you know, prior to the pandemic, we didn't have such as social isolation. Um, if a family is moving their members back from a facility, I think they first need to, you know, be prepared to talk to the facility in detail, talk to the director of nursing, talk to the different therapies, talk to social services to make sure that their decision to bring their loved one home is made with, you know, uh, understanding all of the details. Um, they should, you know, look into their, look at their home. You know, are there modifications that need to be done? Do they need to have um, a chairlift installed or grab bars or a wheelchair ramp? In our area, many of the homes that families live in are, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, where prior to, you know, going into a facility, maybe it wasn't a concern. Um, but we need to look into the ADA um, adaptions for homes to make sure that wheelchairs will be able to, you know, be moved into a bathroom to help with toileting or bathing. Um, you know, they also need to, you know, look into whether or not the family themselves can support the client or whether they will need to reach out to additional resources for home care, um, you know, and whether that is on a skilled level with just physical therapy and occupational therapy, or whether they will in fact need to reach out to non-medical and home care agencies to have additional care to help support the safety and the day-to-day -day needs of their loved ones. Um, one of the things that all families will need to take into account is the impact that it's going to have on them as a family. Um, many families are you know, now currently working from home. They're, they have their you know, school-aged children in their home. Some have their college-age students still in their home. And if they you know, decide to bring you know, mom or dad home, that's adding to that family dynamic and changing it, you know, completely. So we need to understand everybody's, um, how, how it's going to affect every single person in that home. Um, and finally, or of equal importance when facing the decision, what's the financial impact? Um, and what level of care and, you know, support are they going to need out of the home that they are going to have to either pay for through long-term care insurance, or private pay, um, you know, I think a fantastic resource to help families make decisions would be to engage in a, um, aging care managers such as Colleen with Lionheart Elder Care to help them make good decisions. You know, aging care managers have broad range of experience and resources to help families and really gives them an additional support to make appropriate decisions in bringing their loved one home. 
So given this, you know, maybe Colleen and I can talk about the client that we worked together to bring to living a few months ago. Thanks, Lisa. I can kind of cue that up. I want to start just by saying that in response to the question, I think the first place, another sort of first place to start is what, why was the decision made to move that person from their home to a community? And if that's because they were isolated at home, now they're isolated in the community, well, then maybe bringing them home is better because you can have more visitors. On the other hand, if that person was moved to community because they weren't able to manage um, a number of their activities at home, like dressing, bathing, showering, those kind of things, then you just need to think about how are we going to handle those uh, at home? And that's exactly why somebody brings in home care agency, um, like with Lisa. So with the client that, that Lisa and I worked with together, um, it was an adult son whose mother was in um, a local assisted living in the memory support area. And she's a very social person. So when she first moved there, she really actually enjoyed all of the engagement that she had with other people in the community. And then once the pandemic hit, she was um, like all of the other residents, um, only able to be in her room. She could handle phone calls. So in the phone calls with her son, her son realized that she was more confused, definitely sadder. Um, and he was just distressed at not being able to spend time with her and in seeing and hearing on the phone and in the times that they could do FaceTime, that decline. Uh, she just wasn't happy and wasn't doing well. In this particular instance, we were fortunate that um, her family home was still available. She moved quite quickly into that community uh, and had not sold the family home. So that was available for her to come home to. So he asked me to come help. I looked at the home and worked uh, with another agency that does um, home modifications to make sure that the home was safe for her to come back, in this case with ramps and uh, some modifications in the bathroom. Then we really looked at what were her care needs. So I was able to talk with the, um, just like Lisa said earlier, I talked with the medical care team at her community. And, and we just brought this up as, as a very frank thing. They're not surprised by it. Many families made this decision, so they don't take it as a view that they've done something wrong. Um, for some people, it's a fit and some people isn't. So we found out what she needed. Um, we had uh, this client talk with a home care agency. He chose Lisa's home care agency. Um, and she was able to provide somebody to do live-in initially because we didn't know <clears throat> what we were going to see when she came home. Uh, I also arranged for a mover to come move her belongings home. So once that happened, then we also brought in home health care. So we had um, physical therapy and occupational therapy come work with her in the home because she hadn't been getting that physical therapy where she was living and she had lost a lot of strength. Um, and we all met together to really figure out how do we continue to adjust her care needs. And in this instance, and I'll throw it back over to Lisa, we were able to adjust her care needs as she was home for a while um, with her adult son who worked from home. And so he was able to be there a lot of the time. Um, he was able to take over some of that care and we were able to adjust her care needs. Yeah, it, it actually worked out rather well. We did start with a live-in. And we had a living caregiver there for a number of weeks, but due to the family's involvement, you know, the need for the caregiver really was only to help the client with her activities of daily living. Um, her son was, you know, was, was supporting most of the socialization with 
you know, watching TV with her, with movies, conversation. She went back to playing the piano, which she didn't for a long time, with the therapies that were helping her. She was able to actually need less one-to-one -one care than she needed when we first started. So we actually backed out the live-in and now have daily support in the home. And it's worked out great. You know, that the client is happy and well-adjusted and, and happy to be back in her home. The son is also, you know, much happier because he can see and talk to his mom on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, in this particular situation, because she did in fact still have her home, the transition was made easier. So, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to work with Colleen and it's worked out great for this family as well as other families who have, have made this difficult decision. So thank you. No, that's, that's, that's a good case study. Um, maybe to build on that, it would help to educate our listeners a little bit about uh, well, first of all, let's start with you, Colleen, in terms of what an aging care specialist is, which is what you are, Colleen, um, and uh, tell us a little bit more about the scope of work that, that you provide and, and how people could contact you or else one of your colleagues to help in this kind of situation to make those decisions that uh, Lisa was talking about earlier. That is um, a great question. And as long as I have been doing this, which is four to five years now, I've never found a good way to explain what I do. I'll, I'll tell you some of the official words and names so that people searching for this can find it. But I often describe myself as a professional adult daughter. Um, I do everything from managing, like a couple weeks ago, I went and unplugged a toilet. Um, I, for some people, make sure they have groceries delivered. but what we really do is we are sort of expert guides and navigators in this process. We understand benefits. We understand what the resources are. Rather than using Google to try to figure out how to help your loved one and know who can you trust, who's the right resource, how much is this going to cost, it's sort of like having um, it's sort of like having a wedding planner or a tour guide. We say, what is it that you're trying to achieve? We'll bring in the right people and the right resources within your budget to figure this out. Um, so how do we, how do you find us? <laughs> We're known by a bunch of different things. So geriatric care manager is kind of the old fashioned term that nobody really likes anymore, but is fairly descriptive. Um, so you'll hear people say geriatric care manager, geriatric case manager, um, I often use the words elder care consultant um, because I do feel like I am often a consultant for families trying to navigate this process. The profession itself is called aging life care professionals. Um, we are all, those people who are certified um, are certified and trained through ALCA, which is the Aging Life Care Association. Uh, aging Life Care Association is um, you can search that on the web, put in your zip code and find an aging life care manager. Um, you are kind to mention my um, company. I'm with Lionheart Elder Care and Consulting. Uh, we're on the web at uh, lionheartelderCare.com. Um, you can also look for other care managers, as I said, on the ALCA website. Word of mouth is also a good word. When you are in sort of 
let's say that you come into the piece with your financial planner or your estate planner or a home care agency, ask them because they know about us um, and they can make recommendations for how to find us and vice versa. When somebody brings me on, that's how I work with um, Lisa, for example. I know that Home Helpers of Northern Virginia does a fantastic job. I knew she'd be a good fit for this client. Um, so we help you find that trusted resource. That's very helpful. So that kind of provides information about the first part. So Lisa, every uh, situation is different. So obviously the two of you work together. How do you determine what the right home health service is for the family who's, you know, thinking about uh, bringing their loved one home? Is there a particular process that people should use to choose an agency or a, a home health provider? What would you tell uh, our listeners as to what they need to consider, especially in cases like this, when they're taking their loved one or considering taking their loved one out of a, of a long-term care facility or assisted living facility? Thank you. That's an excellent question. And I, I think, you know, it, it's defining whether they need, you know, home health services or non-medical and home care services. They're very different. So, you know, home health services are, we call them skilled care services. So it's skilled nursing or physical therapy or occupational therapy um, or non-medical, which, you know, we have caregivers come in the home to help clients with their activities of daily living such as bathing and dressing, transferring, ambulation, as well as things defined as independent activities of daily living, which could be, you know, errand services, laundry, light housekeeping, um, meal preparation. And so, you know, depending upon the situation the family member is moving back into, that would, you know, help them define what they need. Um, you know, with Colleen, I love working with, with aging care managers because there's so much that I cannot do given the capacity of my job with a non-medical home care agency, but there's so much they can provide to my clients to help their either transition to home be effective or to keep them in their home by adding the supportive services that they know how to reach out to and implement. So thank you. I'm wondering too, uh, and I could throw this out to both of you, you've talked a lot about the practical issues and the basic services, even economic issues, safety, but I'll start with you, Colleen, but Lisa, you may want to add, what about the mental status of a family member? As we get older, there are more situations that might occur both insofar as the personal health condition of the individual plus how they relate to family members. Is that an important aspect of the evaluation process as to whether or not living at home is even possible? Sure, absolutely. Well, so frankly, Shelley, we sort of need to think about the capability of, of both people. So the resident who may be moving you know, somebody who's a resident of um, a retirement community moving home, but also the mental status, cognitive status, health status of the caregiver at home. So um, oftentimes the reason that people are in an assisted living or a skilled care is because they don't have the cognitive ability to manage all of those things that Lisa talked about. They're not able to dress themselves, make a meal, go shopping, uh, 
take a shower, that kind of thing without assistance. Um, so, and that can be a physical, there can be a physical reason why they can't do that. But often there is dementia or some other reason that cognitively they can't manage it. Um, at the same time, we need to assess whether the family member who's the caregiver is capable, both mentally, physically, and financially, of caring for that. Caregiving is hard. When you see the statistics of um, caregivers who die before the person that they're um, taking care of, they're staggering. So we cannot deny that this is hard work um, and that it can be very challenging, even if it's welcomed, it's it's hard on the caregiver. Lisa, do you want to add anything there in terms of? I think issues can arise like if one family member is taking on too many things, um, especially too, if the spouse may be still alive and living in the home. Um, you know, what I found and struggle with every day is the generation where um, you know, people who have been married 40, 50, 60 years, I mean, they're used to taking care of each other. And they have, it's almost impossible sometimes to have them to relinquish the responsibility they internally feel to care for their spouse. And, you know, unfortunately, it's often detrimental to their own health and well-being. You know, we see the decline in the secondary spouse while trying to take care of the client that we have. As you know, and with family members, you know, it, it often depends on their relationships with their parents, whether they have the capacity to, you know, do the caregiving or, you know, are they the ones that are coordinate, coordinating the care. And um, in our area, many children live out of state. And so they're trying to coordinate this care from a distance. You know, I, I get calls from family members often that live, you know, in California or, you know, North Carolina, and they just don't know where to start to, to get help. And I know that, you know, Colleen gets calls like that too. And so we try to, I think, be an educational resource for the families first you know, before really engaging them in utilizing our individual services, because we want them to have a broad range of education and in, in understanding, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. So I think overall good communication and a deep understanding is what is, you know, of, of great value in making these difficult decisions. I would add to that, and Lisa, I'd like a, the feedback from you on this also. All of those factors that you've already talked about, uh, which are really important, but how do family members learn how to prevent their loved one from incurring COVID-19? I mean, we've talked about how training is needed when they're in the facility and staff members may or may not have that training or knowledge about infectious diseases and that, but suddenly you've got this person at home and you're still trying to prevent that person from getting COVID, never mind meeting all the other needs. How do you deal with that? Well, I used to meet with families much more often than I do now. You know, I still do the initial assessments in home, but often, you know, continue follow up with, with phone or, or Zoom meetings but a part of my initial meeting, you know, is of course having them understand what the expectations are for our caregivers. You know, our caregivers have to go through a screening process prior to each shift. There's a series of questions that they need to answer. 
they are required to wear a mask during their shift. They are required to wear gloves if they're providing any personal care and of course you know proper hand washing procedures so when we meet with families you know we talk about all of that and you know the expectation that they're going to follow through with that as well now if they've been with their parents for a period of time or you know you know through a quarantine time that they feel safe you know i, I walked into homes where you know they are not wearing masks mask, you know, in the day to day, but we'll put a mask on when, you know, I come in or somebody else comes in. So, you know, I, I try to keep a great line of communication with my care providers when they're in there. So if there's any concern on their part that a family member isn't following through with, you know, proper maybe maybe CDC regulations that there's an opportunity for a re-education. Um, and, and, you know, we, we try to, you know, support our family members to the best of our availability with, you know, when COVID first started, you know, I almost daily or a couple times a week continued to send out, you know, emails uh, or even videos to family members with links of, you know, what the CDC regulations are. And, you know, I continue to do that, not as frequently as I did before, but as things continue to change, you know, I, I think a, a great way to, to help families is just add the educational piece. So you too gave a very, very good case study about how it did work out and the, uh, the health of the person, the older person uh, improved substantially, which is just, it's always wonderful to hear those, those good news stories. But Colleen, what happens if caring for a loved one at home doesn't work out? What, what's going to be the next step in terms of, is the person going to be allowed to return to the facility? What what happens then? That's a great question and, and really should be thought about before the person leaves. We always want to have a plan B before we go to plan A in this instance. So it depends on a number of things. Um, lots of communities are private pay. So most assisted livings, they're private pay. So you pay a monthly rate to live there or in, in like a continuing care retirement community, you pay a certain amount to move in. but but when you are when you're the consumer with private pay, you have more options. So if you were paying already, there is a chance that you can go back to that community. Usually, if you move back, there's a 14-day quarantine period. Um, perhaps that isn't the right community for you. There are other communities. So finding another assisted living or that kind of thing generally is an option. However, it depends on what kind of care you're receiving. So let's say somebody was in the hospital and then they went to rehab, like a skilled nursing community. In that instance, Medicare is following them to that rehab. And if they leave the rehab early, the Medicare stops paying for that. So then if they say, you know what, we thought we could do all of this rehab at home, but we really do think that person has to go back to the rehab community without getting into the details of, of Medicare structure and reimbursements, they would have to private pay uh, a very expensive rate to go back to that. Um, if they are on Medicaid and are living in a long-term care facility like a skilled nursing facility and they leave, they have to, they may lose their Medicaid eligibility and have to requalify. And that can be tricky and, and sometimes expensive and time consuming. So there are quite a few things to think about in this instance. Um, it's not a decision to be made lightly. Indeed. And as I said, both of you have just 
provided so much information. And um, uh, I, I want you to also tell us, because we're almost to the end of the program here, how to get in touch with you. You, you mentioned it already, Colleen, Lisa, we want to hear uh, how folks can get in touch with you. But before you do that, maybe Colleen, is there also some place that uh, people can look to on the internet as to you know resources to learn about these pros and cons? We hope that they'll listen to this radio show. But in addition, uh, that people this will help people think about all these things that both uh, the two of you have uh, have provided for us. Where would they look? I wish there was one simple place that you could put in your uh, situation and look at it. But in many communities, there are um, there are groups within that community, like a, a resident uh, support group. Um, so, in communities, often have distribution lists of other people in that community. So sometimes it's talking to other people in that community. Perhaps you're frustrated with that community because you don't feel like you're getting what you need. Um, so talking to the person at the community or getting um, on like a residence council or a family council at your community is a good source. But other than that, um, it's really hard for families to figure it out. I, I wish it weren't. I wish that there wasn't a need for me um, putting this all together. But but we don't have training for this. It's not something that you learn. Um, so I wish it were easier. But talking to other people, talking to the people you already trust, start with the people in your life that are knowledgeable um, and see how you can connect, get connected to the right resource. So tell us how folks can get in touch with you. And then Lisa, please do the same. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, I can be found online at uh, lionhearteldercare.com. So it's lionheart, um, lion like the animal, heart like the body part, eldercare, all one word, .com. Or you can search for me by my name. And um, you can also find other, uh, my, me and other Aging Life Care managers on the uh, Aging Life Care Association website. Okay. Lisa? Thank you. Um, my, my name is Lisa Householder. I'm the Client Care Director with Home Helpers of Northern Virginia, and I can be reached directly through our office number at 703-766-0154. We also have a website, you know, Home Helpers of Northern Virginia, and that would be, you know, the best way to contact me or through, you know, some other resources. You know, the care managers have access to um, home care agencies as well, so that that's also effective. All right. Well, I want to thank Colleen Duell, Aging Life Care Manager of Lionheart Elder Care, and Lisa Householder, Client Care Director with Home Helpers of Northern Virginia, for joining me today. To listen to past radio programs and watch Aging Matters TV episodes, best way to do that is to look at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash aging matters wera at that site you'll find the internet addresses to access both the radio shows and the tv episodes and by the way there's a new tv episode episode 19 which is another stories for life so uh, be sure to check that out it's an excellent episode and also aging matters radio is available as a podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts so 
Please invite your friends and family to listen to these programs like today, which was really informative. And also ask them to rate and review the program at these sites. That's really important to to keep these programs going. I also want to thank Robert Winship for handling the technical aspects of today's program. And always thank you for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back with you again next week. 